0: Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a cathartic part of the Specgram Podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this linguistics roundtable telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from a virtual in Vienna. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds: Keith Slater, great to be with you; Sherry Wells Jensen, hi there; and Bill Sproul. Hey. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. You guys know the drill. I've got three language related items; two are true, and one is false, and you guys have to figure out which is which, and then we will discuss. Two are true. Two are true. Okay. Same as it ever was.
1: (laughs) Except when you change it.
0: I've never done that. I swear. So our theme for this time is stupid American laws. And actually, these are all stupid language-related laws from Illinois. Here we go. Item number one. Mispronouncing the name of Joliet, Illinois as Joliet is punishable by a $5 fine. Item number two. In Illinois, quote, the English language is not to be spoken, unquote. Item number three. In normal Illinois, intentionally using a pronoun of the wrong gender is a misdemeanor. All right. Who wants to go first? I could go first.
2: How about it? Okay. Mispronouncing the name of Joliet, Illinois is punishable by a $5 fine. That is undoubtedly true, although I'm sure they don't collect this anymore because the paperwork for processing a fine like that would cost more than the fine itself nowadays. But anyway, I can imagine that's still on the books somewhere the rule in Illinois, you said, quote, the English language is not to be spoken, end quote. It's really hard to imagine what this would mean. Maybe that English can only be written, as apparently is in the law. Maybe that only the American language can be spoken, not the British English language. But anyway, this one is so outlandish that it must be true. And so that means that the last one, that's a misdemeanor to use the pronoun of the wrong gender in normal Illinois. That's a a misdemeanor, you said. So it must be that it's actually a felony. So I'll say that that's the false one.
0: Okay. All right. Who wants to go next?
1: Oh, I'll go next because I get to disagree with Keith. Just no, no.
2: Funny. That's never worked for you before.
1: <laughs> it's working this time. I know it. <laughs> so, Okay. So number two in Illinois, the English language is not to be used. That strikes me again as too outlandish to be true. I agree with you exactly on this part, Keith, because I think that that has to be true. And it probably, again, I think means British or or my, I think, an equally good hypothesis is that it's a typo that is in the law.
3: somehow. <laughs> there's,
2: a,
1: there's like the an argument got missing.
2: Stuck in there. the yeah the there's, there's got some, stuck in accidentally.
1: Something like that. Or there's some kind of explanation missing. Or Trey is willfully misquoting, which is not making things up. It's just willfully misquoting. I'm going to say that one's true. The wrong gender in normal Illinois, it's only a misdemeanor. And so I'm thinking that one might be true. And the reason is this, the whole Joliet, Joliet thing, I think to make that clear in writing, ideally, you'd have to do a little phonetic transcription to be sure that everyone knew exactly what it is you meant. And I don't think that's happening. I can't picture the brackets, you know, in there. Written into the law. <laughs> and I can't picture the jolly okay. hyphen at or the jolly Yeah, jolly I, hyphen at the Come jolly. Not everybody hyphen has et. ways
2: to write phonetics. Okay, go ahead in your folly.
1: No, in my folly. Or my folly.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I really think number one is the false one. That's what I
4: got. Okay, Bill. Well I think number three is probably true. And my grounds for that is simply that having grown up in the South and having had long hair in the early 80s and having policemen refer to me as she as a way of thinking they could annoy me. I, I could see this as being in the group of things that you could say, look, somebody was fomenting a disturbance by, yeah, it's it's in the same category as calling people names or something. They've internalized this as kind of something that you can slap a ticket on somebody for to prevent fights or something. Number two, like the other people, number two sounds too wrong to really be wrong. (laughs) So if it's Trey double-double faking us, then it's working. (laughs) I agree number one is wrong, but to me it's not the phonetic detail that's doing it. It's that given cultural constraints... You could make the argument in court that intentionally using the wrong gender on a pronoun is an act of verbal hostility and could lead to a disagreement, especially if you're thinking like 1960s mindset or something. I can't see getting that to hold up with just mispronouncing the name of the town. You could argue it, but the judge would think it was funny, but I honestly can't see that holding up. So I'm going to say one's the wrong one.
2: No, one is just
4: basic civic
2: pride. It's It's got to be true.
4: All right. Well, let's start with
0: number two, which everyone agreed was true. And that is that in Illinois, the English language is not to be spoken. And you guys pretty much had the right idea. What you're supposed to speak is American.
2: aha American? Yep. American. 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 Not none of them there British things.
0: <laughs> number three, I was exactly thinking of what Bill described when I made that one up. Oh, that's the oh, false on. one.
3: Oh,
2: it's true good I mean it's false Yay. it's false
0: yeah I also had long hair in the south in the 80s and we get things like what are you a girl yeah it's like yeah okay somehow they did encode the idea that the name of Joliet should be pronounced Joliet not Joliet that and the English language is not to be spoken are still on the books but are not enforced obviously
2: mm. well that was a very successful uh, little uh, event
0: there that was great because Sherry and Bill, who were in the lead, both got it wrong. Taken down. <laughs> and Keith and I, who were not doing quite as well, <laughs> are now doing much better. So we're all tied? Almost, almost.
1: Oh, that's so friendly.
0: Sherry is still in the lead with 60%, while Keith, Bill, and I all have 50%. 50%
3: exactly.
0: <laughs>
4: yep. I'm trying to remember oh, that's if that's like better me. than chance. The point that really got us, I think, was Trey priming us with making sure it was normal Illinois. I thought about
1: that. I thought about you that. Know, He's
4: to, just to, doing to, that. To activate all of those concepts about cultural conformity and everything.
0: Mm. Yeah. I did go looking for, you know, smallish towns, but not the ones that have populations of like 138 people. Right. When I stumbled across normal Illinois, I said, yep, that's the right one. It's a reasonably large town, and uh, yeah, the name was was too good not to use. I think that's all the time we have for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. We'll be back with some prescriptivist confessions after this word from our sponsors.
2: Language Made Difficult is brought to you by a sponsor who chooses to remain anonymous. Do you need data to support your theory? We represent almost a dozen little-known dying languages, each with five or fewer elderly speakers left. These native speaker groups have each come to terms with the fact that their language is going to disappear, and they want to cash out. These speakers will incorporate any desired phenomena into their language, and then allow you to make audio and video recordings. After a few years, the speakers will be gone, and your data will be unassailable. Serious inquiries only to P.O. Box Alpha Beta Gamma, Newton Falls, Ohio, 44444.
1: Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Forsooth, good friends, it is time for ye old prescriptivist confessions. We shall forthwith get bothersome aspects of language off our metaphorical chests and vent our metaphorical spleens. To whom shall I give the honor of going first?
2: To meme. No, to me. How about that? Uh, I have trouble you. with that case. I have trouble with that, that case a- marking. Anyway, I have a thing that bugs me. Now that my kids have gotten to, you know, sort of junior high age, they've started bringing perturbations in the language back into the home. And one of the ones that maybe I just don't get it, but I think I don't like it, is some kind of an interjection, which is homophonous with the verb burn. <laughs> so the kids are always saying burn. And I think that it's some kind of a response to what the other person has said. But anyway, I don't like it. That's not the way the
0: word is used. <laughs> I'm a native speaker of burn. <laughs>
2: Wasn't he a poet?
0: <laughs> That's Burns. <laughs> That's burn. Burn. So some of his poems are pretty good Burns. They really are, yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, is this a noun? I thought it was a... Uh, a um... I take it as a
0: noun, yeah. Uh-huh. We did this in middle school and some in high school. Basically, the idea is you got burned, right?
2: Yes, I took it to mean something like that.
0: Yeah, but you can say, or at least we could, you can say something like, that was a burn. Or that was a really good burn. I think it's been grammaticalized now, reduced to just one
2: syllable, which the kids probably don't know how to spell. Burn. (laughs) B r r r
0: n. Is the correct (laughs) way to spell it. It's pirate talk. Burn. No, it's like riot girl. Something else you're not familiar with. Sorry, (laughs) I've never heard of riot girl. (laughs) Next,
1: I've actually heard my daughter say something that she thought was, you know, a, a telling statement, and then say. Hashtag burn.
2: Oh Hashtag burn. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> oh no that's that's horrible.
1: <laughs> I'm concerned about this. I mean burn is one thing, but hashtag burn, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I'm you know, I don't know. I'm I'm new to Twitter, so it frightens me.
2: You know, that's interesting because we discussed slash and hashtag is maybe a little bit similar. New lexicon arising out of something punctuation y
0: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same thing, that it actually functions in a way similar to the more interesting meaning of Slash, where Slash was introducing a new but related topic. The hashtag is sort of like minimalist commentary, right? Yeah.
1: Or it's the context, right? Also, isn't it? I'm working on becoming a native speaker of hashtag. It's an acquisition process, not a learning process. You you did it on the last show, Sherry. Did I say hashtag?
2: Yeah, you did. I don't know. Trey may have edited it out, but anyway, you did.
0: Um, (laughs) I don't think it's the
2: context. Hashtag burn, which you just said. That's not the context. That's commentary. Yeah. That's
0: commentary. Hashtags can be used as context as well. Yeah, it's a little descriptive add-on. It's a little embellishment of some sort. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things is like people who say lol instead of laughing. These people actually exist, right? So LOL Mm -hmm. for laugh out loud. Say lol? They say lol, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: My daughter says lol. Well, she's gone to the dark side.
0: You know, she's young enough that you can almost forgive her for lol. That's been around longer than she has. So <laughs> cool. she may have learned it from someone else. But the hashtag thing, she's just picking that up from the bad element.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are all these ones. And I actually I confess that I did this as I'm working on my tweeting skills. Hashtag responsible parenting. Before which you say the rotten thing that you just allowed your children to do,
3: right mm,
0: right, so, so it's that's... not only
1: context and commentary it's sards sardonic yeah. sardonicism sardonicism right. is that the word?
0: Oh, that means that you are acquiring it because if you can take it and subvert it and use it sarcastically
4: oh, thank sardosis, you. sardosis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the disease, so what about you, Bill? Are you down with burn?
4: oh not right. <laughs> It's your sort of classic slash-and-burn grammaticalization. (laughs) It seems like it's productive at first, but after a while, the sort of discourse ground becomes fallow and you have to move on. It becomes
0: midden. Mm, I don't know, because like I said, burn was common when I was in middle school. You're dating yourself.
4: You were in a large urban area.
0: This is true. I was in Houston. Trey is only 21.
4: (laughs) Is he 21
1: already?
0: (laughs) And online, burn has become sort of a productive source of interesting turns of phrase, right? Like instead of just saying burn, people will try to be a little more creative and they'll say something like, or type something like, call the burn unit, right? Or uh, you're going to need some aloe vera. They become even more oblique references to being burned. I think it's got some life left. Anyway, since I'm currently talking, I will keep talking and (laughs) let you guys know about one of my prescriptivist confessions. A thing that really bothers me is when people give illogical answers to Boolean questions. And so you say, would you like A or B? And they go, yes. And I think there are two kinds of responses to this. One seems to be from normal human non-linguistic muggles who when they do that they actually mean if you say would you like A or B, they mean B. So they're just kind of responding to the last one. And so they're they're agreeing. And then there are the people who've taken too many linguistics classes and it's damaged their brain, and they actually mean, yes, it is either A or B and I'm not going to be helpful. Because I know what Gricean implicature is and I'm going to violate them as many times a day as humanly possible. <laughs>
2: There are such people.
0: Yes. And so that just drives me crazy. What's the solution, Trey? Uh, bludgeoning with a cricket bat? <laughs> <laughs> or did you want a linguistic solution?
2: Uh, no, I was thinking the proper answer would have been either A or B, right? Right. To answer that. Yes. I think sometimes people say yes at the end of, would you like A or B? I think I often find myself in a situation where someone says yes, answering A while the person is still saying B, and then I'm not completely convinced which they were saying yes to. So I often find myself saying, uh, which one?
0: You know what? I bet it probably depends on the people you hang out with and whatever their habit is. So I think I hang out with people who just say yes to the last one and you hang out and and you're hanging out. But that's the point is that it's idiosyncratic and changes from person to person. Kind of like when you talk about next Friday, Mm -hmm. if it's Wednesday, is next Friday two days away or nine days away? (laughs) You know, um,
2: is that Southern? Because I have that same problem. So I often say next Friday and people don't understand what I mean. And often I mean nine days away because this one's already assumed.
0: I do too. I would say if I was going to use next, I would say the next Friday. When you say the next Friday, you're sort of looking at things as individual days as opposed to next Friday, which is the Friday of the next week taken as a Mm -hmm. whole. At least that's what I just decided at some point when I was a kid (laughs) because it made enough sense that at least I could be consistent with what I meant. (laughs) Whether anybody understands you or not. At least I always mean the same thing when I say it. So someone could conceivably learn what I meant. I think other people not only are consistent with each other, but may not be consistent with themselves.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't think I'm consistent with myself. So I think to me, if it's uh, Monday, next Friday means the upcoming one. But if it's Thursday, next Friday means not the upcoming one, but the following one, because we're already close enough that this one is this this Friday. And so other people never have any idea what I'm talking about.
0: So I have a question for you then. On Monday, what's this Friday? It's the upcoming one.
2: I think on Monday, this Friday and next Friday are the same. See, for me, this Friday
0: and next Friday always have to be different. Oh, oh. well, that's that's not right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> this Friday is always the most temporally proximate Friday. In both directions? Other than the one that just happened. Okay. The not, not both directions. Only, only going the
1: forward. problematic case is Saturday. Though. If it's Saturday, then I don't know. Because if it's Saturday, this Friday... Could be the one past. Yeah, I I to should... me that
4: would be last Friday. Oh. The minute it's after Friday, that's that becomes last Friday. Mm. Mm. So on Saturday, last Friday is eight days ago. Yeah, absolutely not.
0: And Friday is yesterday. Uh, one day ago is yesterday. Yeah.
4: On Saturday, last the, the day right before Saturday is last Friday. If you're on Saturday, no, I don't have any intuition on and, this question. And for the future, I- for the future, the more specific terms, at least in my family, which I will then decide is representative of all Badger Southerners is if you say Friday coming up, it's the closest one following. If you uh, if you say Friday next week, that's the one that's in the la- the next week. That's right. how you get more specific with it.
0: So I agree on coming up. And obviously when you say next week, usually we don't seem to have the same confusion about whether a given week is this week or next week.
4: Right. Because the only possible confusion there is whether you think the week cycles on um, – Sunday or Monday? Monday, right. It's is Sunday the seventh day or the first day? Right. I mean, you know, you get some waffling on that. Right, like right. The whole religious
0: issue, but right. Do you take Friday next as a shortening of Friday next week? Yes, yes. me too.
1: That's just oh. British. That's not even. You couldn't say that in Illinois because that's British.
0: <laughs> Burn. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag, you're so clever. All right. <laughs> <laughs> to finish out that topic i did have a related joke mm. someone asked the semanticist i heard you had a baby was it a boy or girl and they reply
4: yes yeah that's one of the funnier semanticist joke <sighs> yes i'm but... waiting for the punchline <laughs> <laughs> but it's still incredibly lame <laughs>
1: You know that was one of the best resounding silences (laughs) I've heard in a really long time.
0: It wasn't my joke. My whole point was to point out how lame it is, and the fact (laughs) that people do it on purpose. (laughs) I I need to go back to that cricket bat solution.
2: Cricket bat solution is uh,
0: will cover many
2: many situations.
1: (laughs) I do need the cricket bat solution for mine. If if it's time for mine, please. Okay. So what I cannot abide, I cannot stand it, is no. Problemo! Hate it! Hate it! Hate it. Hate it. Me hate too! It. Hate, it. hate it! Hate it! Hate hate, hate.
0: What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so man. let me guess: key to you, no problemo is no problemo. <laughs> no problemo. <laughs> uh. <laughs> It's clearly Spanish, and it's clearly wrong.
1: Clearly wrong. <laughs> wrong. And I hate Not to, to me, play. because
0: I don't know any Spanish. We could teach you two words in Spanish, and then <laughs> you would necessary. not
1: be wrong. <laughs> you need to know, you know, you can go ahead and learn taco and all that stuff, but the other one you have to learn is problema.
4: Problema. I see.
1: Problema. I see. You can even go, Ah! If you have to, to help yourself remember.
4: I just hear that and think of, what was it, Sean Penn in that movie in the early 80s? The Fast Times at Richmond, Richmond High? High or something? Yeah, Because there was a the whole thing about the bad Spanish. They just put O on the end of everything. Hmm. And there's that kind of voice I says, you know, no problemo, dude. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well,
1: I guess if you're going to say dude after it, then problemo is okay. I think it has to be, but cause you can't say no problema, dude. You have to say dude if you're going to do dude. that.
2: Yeah. Dude. I think it should have been dudo. No problemo, dudo.
0: <laughs> that would also be acceptable pseudo-Spanish, yes.
2: <laughs> anyway, the pseudo-Spanish doesn't bother me because I don't know any Spanish and my wife does, and I deliberately say things like that just for entertainment around the home.
1: <laughs> well, if it's if it's for the purpose of tormenting someone you love, then I guess then it's okay. <laughs>
2: then it's different.
1: <laughs> that is different, and I I am deeply saddened that I'm finding so many ways in which this is okay because it's not okay. <laughs>
3: it's
1: really not okay.
2: I agree with you. It's just it is annoying. Anyway, it isn't Spanish, right?
0: It's um, it's English. I don't know because it's. I think the problema if you're is going to be pseudo Spanish. It is the, the ad-o stupid Spanish.
1: Stupid-o Spanish-o.
0: Yeah, the stupid-o Spanish-o. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, it's too close.
1: Oh, is that what it is?
0: It may also be a problem because in Spanish, even though it's problema, it's still masculine, I believe.
1: Yes. Your ma well, uh, is masculine. Your dad is feminine. Libertad, right. but problema. Right. Libertad, all those bad ones are feminine. See, it's a, it's a simple little rule. You could just learn it and then be done.
4: Right. I think I may have figured it out. I just checked something on Google Translate. And although the no could be English or Spanish, problemo is clearly Esperanto. That is a problemo. So that is, although S- progress, Esperanto, no, no problem, would be manual problemo. So I think it's a Spanish Esperanto blend.
1: For all those Esperanto Spanish bilinguals.
4: Right. It's just it's just code
2: switching. <laughs>
1: okay, if you are a Spanish it's Esperanto. Espenato. If you are an Esperanto, it's Spanish bilingual. Esperanto. It's also okay if you're a native bilingual speaker of Spanish and Esperanto. That's only that's it, though. That's it. No more exceptions. That's it. That's all.
0: Well, what about, I mean, no is no, actually, no, is no in English. So if you're bilingual in English and Esperanto?
4: Yeah, it could be an English Esperanto blend, but that would not annoy Sherry as much.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you these only if Esperanto is your first language.
0: <laughs> all right, then.
1: And I think that keeps me pretty safe. I can go ahead and be annoyed. Almost all the
4: time, then. Pretty much all the time.
0: Goody. Goody. (laughs) Dang. That's a terrible one.
4: All right. (laughs) I have a couple, but one of them is an actual sort of silly peeve. The other is just observing the genesis of a peeve, I think. (laughs) The pseudo-actual peeve in that it does bother me, even though I know this is silly, is that I keep reading things where people use the construction, all blank don't do something. And I can't tell if they mean none of them do that or whether they mean not all of them do that. Can you give an example? Oh. So it's something like, all of my students don't use this construction. It's you like, really the, that? well, it, it's in writing. I get it in writing. Ah. Mm. And then it's sort of like, well, I could see that meaning none of them do this. Or, you know, this goes back to those implicatures. It's like that's kind of the logical reading of it. Well, there are two logical readings. None of them do that or not all of them do that. Right. It's a negation (laughs) scope thing. Yeah. All right. All right. So on the one hand, I'm sitting there thinking, why don't people just pick which one of those they mean and be clear about it? On the other hand, most of the time we don't start into a sentence thinking, okay, I'm gonna about to use negation. Where do I want the scope on it to go? Mm, right. I don't know. You just start into the sentence and they well, if you've been programming a lot, you might actually think about it more, but most, <laughs> because that gets you in trouble. But uh most people don't. So that's the actual kind of peeve, which is, you know, here are a couple of ways to disambiguate this. Would it kill you to use those? Huh. The nascent peeve, which shouldn't even bother me, it's just... Wait, wait, noticed... wait, 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 yeah, wait, wait. Sorry? We need to talk about that one.
1: <laughs> we need to help you through this, Bill. We're here for you.
3: Uh,
0: let's go back to the one you were, your current one. While you were talking, I was looking on Google to try to find an example of all X don't whatever. And I found something that's interesting. I don't know. So we're going to do some, some random folk.
4: There, there's also the variant with the uh, of like all of X don't. Okay. When I Google
0: all of my friends don't, because people are not saying this about their students online very much, at least, a couple of things come up. One is all of my friends don't like me anymore, which is sad and depressing. I don't really have anything to say about that.
1: That's on the lolcat page, isn't it? I mean, come <laughs> on, that's not even... Hashtag oh, grammar question mark.
0: Okay, but there's a an idiom, right? Of don't give a. <laughs> and when you use that one, it actually works, and that's sort of a fixed phrase which I see all the time on the internet. And actually, people say things like, "See all the I don't give," right? I mean, this is a very chunky idiom that can be messed with a lot. And so the phrase "All my friends don't give a." There's only one way to parse that, and that means that all your friends are performing the act of not caring, of not giving a.
4: You can't say all of my friends don't give a. Only some of them do. No, you could no. Okay. Because don't give it is a single piece. Is fixed. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's the only thing that comes up when you search for all my friends don't.
4: <laughs> well, I tried searching for all of them don't. Okay. Okay, so here's a headline that's off of Politifact Texas: University of Texas student athletes may borrow limited number of iPads but all of them don't automatically get them. Oh. Now, I know what they mm-hmm. mean is not all of them automatically get them. Right. That's written, though. The way it's written, it could technically mean zero of them automatically get them, right? They have to apply for them or something. Like, every single one has to apply.
0: Yeah.
2: Bill, have so, you been sneaking a look at semantics textbooks again?
4: <laughs> well, here's the problem? From one perspective, 99% of the time, it won't be confusing. But You know how it gets when you are sort of copy editing. You start thinking of things literally. Right. And it's hard to move your brain out of that state. So even though it's kind of like, this is not contract law. You don't have to take it that literally. I hit these things and I think. You could've used one of these two and Yeah. it would have been specific. Why didn't you do that?
0: Exactly. <laughs> You've got three places you could stick the negation and two of them are clear, one at either end. Why'd you cram it in the middle?
4: Yeah. Mm. So it's not like you have to learn a new fancy word like cornucopia to make this work. <laughs> right? <So. laughs> now the other thing, the Pivogenesis
0: Oh, I was gonna say Pivogenesis. I Oh, you stole my thunder. Go ahead.
4: <laughs> I was so excited. So excited. This is from reading stacks of papers. In this area, among young people, as far as I can tell, the sequence based on has been replaced by based off of. Mm,
3: mm, mm, er.
4: Okay, so it's not, you know, (laughs) based on this notion, I can say that. It's based off of this notion, I can say that.
1: That is a problemo right there. I could just, (laughs) ugh.
4: Well, if you stop and sort of think about it, it's kind of, all right, I could... In my own head, there's a semantic distinction. If I say based on this, it's kind of firmer, where based off of this means I'll use this point and kind of wildly kick off of it, right? So one of them is based ba, and the other one's based young, right? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. You know, I doubt I- that most people make that distinction. <laughs>
1: It's in, it's in
4: where, I mean, it's in a bestseller. You figured they would know that. So, <laughs> People who shell out $200 for a book, that's saying it's important. But at any rate, I'm willing to believe that that distinction, I just made up in my head to make sense of this. Right. I think that's correct. Yeah. There's no yes. logical reason other than you have to hit more letters to say, well, don't oh. use based off of, say based on. Oh, no, no.
0: Say based off of because then your paper is three letters, four characters longer.
4: Well, I haven't thought of that. And it does count as a separate word.
0: Yeah, so you've increased your word count by one and your character count by four.
4: Yeah, I had not thought of that. But I did notice as I was reading it because there's that phenomenon where when you notice something once then you keep noticing it right? right It started to become a peeve as I was reading. I start off sort of like, okay, you know, prepositions are changing, they do that And it's like, oh, I'll did it again and it's oh, it happened again. And so by the time I get part way through the snack, the linguist part of me is going, this is a totally illogical reaction that has no basis in anything. The other part of me is going, darn young people.
0: <laughs>
4: Get off my lawn.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think this is related to what we were, some of the things we were saying about word aversions in the last episode. How you can have this aversion to something, not based on sound, but these changes that are happening. And the one part of your brain is... Of course, being all linguistical in the other part of your brain is, as I said, die, heathen, die. But I have to be nice to the people who say based off of because I'm one of those people who says that things fall off of instead of just fall off. Things don't fall off the table, they fall off of the table.
1: Of course, they fall off of the table. What else would they do?
0: They would fall off the table, not off of.
1: No, no, no. You could say both of those. Fall off the table. Fall off the yeah. table. Over
0: the course of my life, I have taken a lot of heat from different people who oh, oh. are not linguists and are not from where I'm from, who are like, off of? Nobody says off of.
1: It bounced off of the wall, then it fell <laughs> off of the table. It's totally grammatical.
0: Okay, well, then you should like, based off of.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> That's an illicit word blend from spring off of or something. It's probably
4: Esperanto.
1: <laughs> 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 Only these Spanish Esperanto <laughs> bilinguals have permission to say that based off of.
4: I'm fairly sure it's <laughs> Españanto. That's the one <laughs> <blend> language. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, Sherry, I didn't like your example. You said it, it bounced off of the wall and fell off of the table, right? Yeah. I if hear. that was describing the same trajectory, then so, bouncing off of the wall, and then it can't fall off of the table after that because well, I, it wasn't on the table. Oh, she skipped, she skipped
1: I skipped a, a step. She skipped a step. I, yeah, I skipped a step. It bounced off of the wall. It might have hit the ceiling, got a loop de loop, landed on the table, then it fell off of the table, whatever it is.
0: And then it started rolling a little bit. To fall off of the table, it
2: has
4: to have been at a standstill. Okay, here, here's a question, though, because it occurs to me that this is the kind of thing that would happen. Yeah, you know, most of us. Like, I tend to say fall off of the table, too. But that's a position where the of always becomes just a. Uh. So it's sort of like off of, right? Off of the table, yeah. So what happens if, well, let's say, the noun you're putting after it for the object from which it falls, what happens if it's vowel initial?
1: Well, just put an indirect object. It bounced off of a egg. No, bounced Well, off yeah, of a, it, bounced off.
4: it bounced off of Would an egg. you say it bounced uh, off egg. of an egg, or would you say it bounced off an egg? Because I think I put the uh in just, it's kind of the same thing that happens with uh and and, right? If the thing starts with a vowel, then the F, this is not being very clear, I know, but it's sort of like the uh that you get on quote off off unquote, is really just uh, and it's coming after the F for phonetic reasons, not grammatical ones. Did that make any sense? Well, hmm. Your claim is understandable.
0: I do not know that I... (laughs) So yes, your claim is understandable. understandable, (laughs) It would be
4: testable. Mm. Because you could see if it's pronunciation affecting distributions of things like that, then if it affects typing as well as speech, etc., then you should find the of, off of being more common before things that start with consonants than things that start with vowels. All I, think being
1: vari- I think your variable is rate of speech more than vowel initial. And you can't write any of these down because they all look funny written down.
3: Hmm.
1: But now everything starts to look funny.
4: Yeah. <laughs> like Let's say you have someone's name is Angie and you're using this sort of expression to bounce ideas off somebody or off of somebody. Okay. Would you be more likely to say, well, I need to bounce well, that really is off of, that's kind of part of the idiom with bounce.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: One of the kids threw a Nerf ball, and it bounced off Angie. Or would it be bounced off of Angie?
0: It bounced off of Angie. Yeah, that's fine. Their one's okay.
4: Yeah. Mm, it's not a separate
0: ah or uh or whatever. It becomes off of.
4: Yeah. Well, no, but that's
0: different for me, at least. That's usually different from A becoming a schwa. It doesn't attach on.
4: Well, what I was basically yeah. saying was if we think about the word off, like the preposition off, mm-hmm. in some positions, as having an alightable vowel at the end. It's kind of off and historically, well, that might have come from off, but who cares? It's just the word in some positions is pronounced off, and in other positions, it's pronounced off of. No, no, no. And it's affected by the phonetic characteristics of what's after.
0: No, definitely not. Definitely not. Because there, you can have an emphatic version where you're like, get that off of the table now. <laughs> and that would be totally fine.
2: Right, and you can't say, get that off of the table now. Get that
0: off of, maybe, but... You can have the,
2: uh,
4: but that may just be
0: but you definitely can have the full form
2: that may just be because people remember the orthographic or yeah, I,
4: I think it's you know this is obviously trying to rescue my little theory here but I think you certainly get cases where people maintain multiple different representations of things.
1: And maybe it just all comes down to intonation, because I I say, I tried to hit him, but the cricket bat bounced off of his head and hit me. (laughs) Or I tried to hit him, and the cricket bat bounced off his head and hit me. Wherever I put the stress, I think.
0: Uh, Interesting. With that stress, those two do sound better being different. Hmm.
1: But then again, I did take a minute to carefully, you know, construct that example. So I don't know.
0: You know, definitely, Bill, in terms of having multiple representations in your head, because I was harassed about this. It's sort of in the bucket with my Texas dialect, which is different from my most commonly used, significantly less accented speech that I use, for example, right now. And I actually had trouble testing your hypothesis because in the dialect where I'm most likely to use off of, it's okay to say your first example was an egg. And it's okay to say it came off a a egg. (laughs) Yeah, off a a egg, yeah. So a a egg is okay in certain cases. And so I couldn't test your hypothesis because when I activated that dialect, the distinction between A and N went away. If it's not there for the article, it's not going to be there for off.
1: We clearly need a large NSF grant of many thousands of dollars, many, many thousands of dollars to do this critical study.
4: It's going to require building a corpus. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also since there's potentially dialect variation, you need lots of like grad students to fan out over the country.
1: Hundreds of thousands of dollars and several vans.
4: Yeah,
0: <laughs> clearly, this program is nothing but a source of possible NSF grants for all of our listeners. Amen. Unless, of course, we file the applications first.
2: Hey, are we getting overhead from those NSF grants? Because <laughs> we should, frankly, we could use the money.
1: <laughs> Nobody's been saying anything about in kind, have they? Because I hope not. <laughs>
0: That's all the time we have for our prescriptivist confessions. I'd like to remind everyone that that phenomenon where you hear something once and then you hear it a bunch more times is the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, and I'm sure you'll be hearing that again soon. We'll be back after a few words from our sponsors. Language Made Difficult is sponsored in part by the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics, a new book from more than three of the editors of Speculative Grammarian. The past 25 years have witnessed many changes in linguistics, with major developments in linguistic theory significant expansion in language description, and even some progress in getting a few members of the general public to realize that the term linguist is not defined as someone who works at the UN doing simultaneous translation. Speculative Grammarian is proud to have been an important part, probably the most important part really, of these changes. And now, in our humble yet authoritative opinion, the time is ripe for the appearance of an anthology containing the most important linguistics articles to have appeared in Specgram in the past 25 years. This anthology, it is hoped, will allow our readers to gain a deeper, wider, fatter understanding of linguistics as it evolved in the late 20th and 21st centuries without the trouble of having to take a graduate seminar in modern linguistics taught by a professor who's so old that she thinks the beach boys are still cute. Some of us took graduate seminars like that ourselves, and believe us, this book is better. Visit specgram.com book and order your copy today. The it are also available online for a limited time only. Eventually all the errors will be found and fixed, right?
2: Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Now it's time for some language in the news. Well, The Economist magazine recently published an interesting essay entitled Trouble at the Lab. And in this article, they looked into the question of how reliable published results in science are. Now, according to their writer, who curiously is left anonymous on the article, published scientific results are extremely unreliable. Peer reviewers, it turns out, miss all sorts of errors. When scholars try to replicate published results, they're able to succeed at a horrifically low percentage, something like 25% or even less, where they can reproduce the results of published studies. Several authors have demonstrated the very likely possibility that more than half of all published results are actually false, but of course we don't know which half. The writer of this article suggests that science is building a house of cards and successive generations of studies are based on a large foundation of false conclusions. Well, this is one of those times when it's probably good that most people don't consider linguistics to be a science because the author didn't mention our discipline by name, but we've got to pose the question, is the situation in linguistics as bad as this essay claims it is for other sciences? And if it is just as bad, do we care?
0: Trey? (laughs) To all those who say linguistics isn't a real science, I think this article is actually providing proof that they're wrong. Because whatever you want to say about linguistics, it's really not noticeably faker than most of the other sciences, except maybe physics. (laughs) And as Quentin Atkinson, one of our favorite whipping boys, has shown, linguistics is at least as difficult as biology. Because since he's a biologist, I assume he can do biology, but he clearly can't do linguistics. Anyway, that said... I think we do see some of the same kinds of problems in linguistics, though I think they come from a different source because, I don't know though, but you hear stories about people taking data snippets and glosses that are taken out of context from a larger corpus and then used by people who don't know anything about the language they're discussing to make a syntactic point, and I'm going to pick on syntacticians because... They're the easiest ones to pick on. I think we discussed the fact that syntacticians will take their own native but non-naive speaker judgments as infallible. And then, of course, we have all sorts of political problems in linguistics, which is another thing that didn't come out in this article. And our field is heavily influenced by famous linguists, including he who shall not be named and veering off point a little bit. But I think in linguistics, we need a, a plate tectonic style paradigmatic revolution and get us an overarching theory that unifies the theoretical underpinnings of the field and not universal grammar, which is abbreviated as UG for a reason. <laughs> Sorry, climbing down off the soapbox.
2: Yeah. Could you address the question? Oh, uh, you did. You did. Um, <laughs> so you think linguistics is not in the same boat as science?
0: I don't know. I, the question is whether or not sciences in general have... So let's take some of the classic hard sciences and fairly hard sciences like biology, chemistry, and, and physics. We need people from within those fields to tell us whether or not they have similar kinds of problems or if they all have different idiosyncratic reasons for this kind of thing. I mean, I think the publisher parish mindset in academia is certainly driving a lot of this. And I think that's true across disciplines. But within linguistics, you know, we have our own set of weird historical facts about our field that lead us to do these kinds of things. And I think maybe only physics has sort of tried to weed some of that out.
4: Well, one difference here, I think, and this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether linguistics is a science or not, et cetera. Is simply that when they're talking about replicating experiments, they're talking about a kind of situation in which presumably there are a large number of people in the field, potentially the entire field, that shares a lot of assumptions about exactly how you interpret data. So that when you do the experiment again, you can look at it and go, hey, that did not produce this result, right? That Yeah, it's, we did the same things and this did not happen. In linguistics, most of the time, we're looking at some data that bunches of people already had, but what we're arguing about is different ways of interpreting it. Or in other cases, we're arguing about data that we're kind of inventing as we encounter it, or at least the data is the result of a large number of interpretive steps that potentially are not shared across the field. It's not like every group of people is going to analyze this set of data in exactly the same way. Given the interpretational differences, we're not in a position where we can get almost the entire field going, yeah, you did the same thing and what people said was going to happen didn't, right? You kind of get that with a lot of grammaticality judgments. I mean, it's fun to argue about the ones that people don't agree on. There's a bunch of grammaticality judgments everybody, in fact, would agree on. They disagree on why those does happen, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, is it... Hmm. Yeah, I. we all agree that's bad, but is it bad because there's an abstract algebraic system that rules out this combination, or is it bad because there's no kind of semantic representation anyone would reasonably have that you would try to instantiate that way, right, or however you want to say that. It's, you know, like, there are different sources of why this does not happen, and what we argue about is why that does not happen.
2: It's not that uncommon that people argue about the data itself in linguistics. So, I once co-taught a class with a relational grammarian, there's some um, discourse-based agentivity marking in some language, or had claims to be, and this apparently violated some principle of relational grammar, and this person wanted to explain to me how bad the data was. And I've seen those kind of discussions quite a lot, I think. It's not just a matter of how we interpret the data, it's that maybe the interpretive frameworks force us to question whether the data is reliable or not.
0: Well, that's a joke that we've made many times, right? It started with someone actually saying this: "Is that at some point, you know, when you're confronted with some some data that doesn't agree, at some point you have to put your faith in the theory, right? Which is just oh my gosh, wildly incomprehensible to me." <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, then we know what kind of linguist you are.
0: Uh, well, I do bad things with numbers and letters <laughs> as my day job. I'm not a real linguist. I'm a computer programmer, so uh, I can say anything I want. But no, I think the stuff that Bill was talking about sounded like native speakers who are linguists and, you know, syntacticians who only work in English, just to pile on the syntacticians again. Different from what you're talking about, Keith, where you've got something that you don't really necessarily have any strong intuitions on and trying to decide what the interpretation is and trying to figure out. I think one of Bill's favorite jokes, right, is if you don't know what it is, it's an adverb, right? Yeah,
3: that's 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 the trash can category.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was a particle. (laughs) Well, no, once you get to particles, you've pretty much admitted defeat.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) If it's an open class word, if you don't know what it is, it's an adverb. If it's a closed class word, when you don't know what it is, it's a particle. There you go.
1: And if you don't know if it's open or closed class, 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 then it's a particle adverb.
4: A particulate adverb.
1: I don't feel too worried about it because I feel like everything circles around and we do eventually sort of sort out what was right and what was wrong, even if we do publish a bunch of stuff that isn't in and of itself right. Because we have been making, arguably, we've been making some progress. Arguably, we've learned some things, right?
0: Yes. In which fields are you thinking?
1: You know, you can start with the hard sciences and then you can just, I feel like, There are at least a subset of linguists. All of the linguists don't behave this way.
3: But
1: But there is a subset of linguists who kind of do the scientific method and really try hard to be specific about the methodology and really do have, you know, two or three people at least test their hypotheses about what's grammatical and what's not. I feel like that's analogous to what the hard sciences do. And the hard sciences, using that method, have made some progress. I mean, we can launch things into space and stuff. So I feel like we're making progress. So I, I'm not too worried about I didn't get too scared when I read this article.
4: Ironically, the areas of linguistics for which it points out the biggest dangers, I think, are the ones which appear more empirical. So, for example, a lot of what they were talking about has to do with studies in psychology. And so psycholinguistics is particularly where you do actually try to do things like measure reaction times, right? Mm -hmm. And at one level, there is, at least superficially, there's kind of a difference between saying, look, we presented a stimulus, it took X number of milliseconds before this person hit the button. And presumably, a huge community of people all agree that if you've got good measurement equipment, yay verily, it took that person X number of milliseconds to hit the button, right? (laughs) On the other hand, if you have somebody coming out with an utterance in response to, you know, a social cue or something, the representation that you put down, like, I'm going to segment this into phonemes, and I've decided where the boundaries of the phonemes are, and I'm going to decide to call that a noun, and I'm going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of moves are ones where there's more disagreement among people in the field. That's not quite like timing the milliseconds where everyone goes, Mm. yeah, it was that many milliseconds. It's more, well, how did you define nouns? When you call things a noun in this language, are You doing that referring to some universal category of noun that you think people have, or is it just a convenient label for a cluster of properties? If so, which ones are they? You know, all of that kind of thing. Right. When linguists work with data, most of the time, the data that we're working with has already percolated through more obvious interpretive steps. Whereas when somebody says it took X number of milliseconds, there may have been a bunch of interpretive steps, but it's a lot easier not to be aware of them. Hmm. When you're describing that, so of course, the the psycholinguistic type
0: studies are subject to a lot of the pitfalls that were described in the article in terms of there's a, a bias against negative results. There's a push to publish anything, to do a little data mining to find some correlation between x and y also one of the things that people don't really think about i think is the fact that you know if you have a 95 percent confidence interval in your statistical test at the most naive interpretation of that is that five percent of your results are still going to be wrong right and when you're doing millisecond timing things you know you just you're going to have random variation and you know five percent of your one in twenty of your studies are just going to be just due to chance and that's okay it currently you know i mean that's the that's part of the problem i guess is that that's okay and then when you, you talk about the more interpretive aspects of analysis of a language i was thinking maybe that's better because it's it's more like philosophy in the sense that you have an argument that you have to make and you need to convince other people who are experts in the field and in in your you know your subject matter and that somehow you aren't presenting an analysis of this data set that isn't really available or that until it's replicated it isn't, you know, it's still 5% untrue in some way.
4: Yeah, it's honestly dodgy. Yeah, so maybe
0: it is better. Maybe maybe those kinds of linguistics
4: are less subject to this. Well, it's going to your point about negative results, cuz I think this is part of the key to it. The problem that a lot of the hard science studies and also the site studies are having is that the publishing scheme, et cetera, et cetera, reinforces not doing replications because they might give you negative evidence or not publishing negative evidence, right? Right. A really good linguistic theory eliminates negative evidence by explaining it away. (laughs) You just sort of refine what it was that you had been saying all along and people interpreted the wrong way. (laughs) And now it's okay. It doesn't have the same problems because it doesn't claim to be doing the same kinds of things, or at least it claims to, but no one will actually believe it, which is kind of good in this case.
0: So then the question is whether or not you can actually make progress with that kind of science.
1: Well, or what progress even means. I mean, what are the consequences? I mean, if, if you do a cancer study incorrectly, or you base it on incorrect data, there's a serious consequence. But I mean, if, if we all get together and do a study that shows that optimality theory is wrong, how is that bad? I mean, what does that hurt? Well, What are the consequences?
3: So what?
0: There you have negative consequences. Uh, you could make uh, an analogy with physics, where there's positive outcomes from physics, but there aren't a lot of negative outcomes from physics, right? I mean, if you have a theory of physics and you do an experiment and then you actually it isn't true what you think is true there aren't usually negative outcomes it's, medicine is, is particularly consequential in that sense and also it, you know you waste money and time maybe if someone tries to use your your process or or something like that as a way, as, as opposed to you know actually hurting people with uh, false positives in in medicine you know compared to physics i mean then where does your example go
1: in physics you don't get cold fusion i guess or whatever right
0: right right so you, you get a lack of a positive result which, which isn't terrible
1: or you blow something up that you didn't mean to blow up, I suppose.
4: <laughs> physics potentially has more consequential tail phenomena, like, oh, I guess that really does make a black hole.
1: <laughs> or a nuclear bomb.
4: Which linguistics is not going to do.
0: <laughs> True. In this sense, linguistics is more or less inconsequential, one way or the other.
4: One of the things we have done, and, it, you know, back to the progress notion. As we've been arguing with each other about this, the friction created by that has triggered a lot of looking at phenomena that we have to kind of acknowledge are there. So it took a good bit of time, but people did acknowledge that you could have objects before subjects in basic word orders. Right. I mean, I think this goes to Sherry's, you know, argument about progress. It's like, yeah, you can try to claim that, well, underlyingly, everything's SVO. But after a while, it gets harder to maintain that because people who were annoyed by that claim went out and kept trying to document more languages. Right.
0: So I guess this is, again, if we we sort of distinguish the sort of more physics model from the more philosophy model, even though you have data, it's largely about the interpretation. You know, certainly the argument against anything other than SVO would have to be more of a philosophical argument. It's not going to yeah. be that kind of statistical, you know, based on this data, we're 95% sure that this is actually an OSV language. Yeah. Even if there's data, it's still largely based on this more sort of philosophical model of interpretation.
4: But there would have been no motivation to go look at that if, there had been enough consensus in the field where people felt like they didn't have to. Sure,
0: sure. So I guess one of the things is that maybe it is linguistics less subject to the kinds of scientific failings and pitfalls that the article is concerned about, because even when there's data, it's still largely about interpretation. And is that good or bad? And do we make
4: progress? Those are the questions. It's harder for us to reach consensus. That might not be a bad thing. True.
1: Right. Because you don't have to be right in order to say something. And publishing is one of the ways that we say things to each other. So you can throw something out there and say, well, I think it's like it's like following an argument. If we're following if the priming studies happen to be all wrong, which would be really fun. (laughs) I mean, we're following that line of argument. I priming study, priming study, priming study. And eventually someone's going to go, maybe that's not what happened. And so so it's OK. And if we don't believe priming until we're done believing priming, then we'll never know. (laughs)
0: And there may be a benefit there in terms of linguistics over something like, I'm thinking back to uh, geology and plate tectonics, which was really not accepted for a long, long time until there just was this huge mountain of evidence that couldn't be ignored. And maybe because of the more philosophical style of progress, it's much easier to question things because you, you don't feel like something is settled. You know, like the Higgs boson is settled now, right? It'd be very hard to argue against that and to get funding to argue against that.
2: I think that people doing linguistics have more flexibility in some ways than people in some of the hard sciences because we're not tied down to labs and research grants and things like that in the same way. So, you create some experiment and run it in a lab, and then you want to come up with some kind of publishable result, right? Mm-hmm. In linguistics, you you get started on something and you change your mind, and there's no consequence to dropping that topic and moving on to something else unless you're about to run
0: out of dissertation funding or something. But right, right. I think
2: in some ways, we're more flexible to be able to redirect in the middle of things.
0: And this explains string theory because it's pretty much not testable. <laughs> There are 18 different flavors of it, and they argue about it without really being able to make up their mind. And there's not a whole lot of evidence. It's more the philosophical, philosophizing type approach. And it all makes sense now. Is that a syntactic theory or a phonological
4: theory?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's got to be syntax.
4: It's orthographic if it's strings. (laughs) But, of course, computational linguistics, you've got a different set of factors because... You do need more funding frequently. And then if your widget works better than other people's widgets, then you pull ahead. Right. But then there isn't there isn't really a,
0: a linguistic theoretical underpinning
4: to a lot of computational yeah. linguistics. Yeah.
0: Right. And actually, I think machine learning in particular was mentioned in the article. And that's a place where you, you do have this sort of the physics model or the psychology model, I guess, where you have sort of statistical things that aren't, you know, 5% error, not 0.00005% chance of error. Right, right. And so, with machine learning, you you have that very similar kind of situation where, on our data with this algorithm, which we haven't necessarily completely described to the point where someone else could implement it, we got better results than this other algorithm, which we implemented a version of ourselves, and maybe we didn't do really know how to run it properly. Right. In that case, even though there isn't a lot of linguistic theory behind that, it has that same psychological type problem of. It looks like hard data, but there's a lot of interpretation, and depending on how the experiment was set up and all that kind of thing.
1: Hmm. I sort of worry. I don't know if I'm worried about it or if I hope it's true that it's just all going to turn out that all of the linguistic theory is just going to come down to statistics and probability, bang, and nothing that we've done else is really there. Maybe we just made that all stuff up.
0: That's what I believe.
1: I think it might be. I, well,
0: I, I keep thinking that'll happen, but it never seems to actually happen. Well, the problem is that so a statistical system can look rule-based but just as you can have a statistical description of a rule-based system, you can have a rule-based description of a statistical system, and neither one perfectly fits. Getting back on the whipping boy du jour, or the whipping field de jour, would be um syntax. I think a lot of syntactic theories, they're sort of overfitting the data and coming up with some model that describes a large swath of a phenomena that happen in a language, and then don't look at the edges where the statistics start to show through, where things aren't 99% one way or the other, they're 80-20 or 60-40. And I think the performance competence distinction is terrible for that because you can just say, oh, that was an error, right? right? You can even get people who say something to agree that it's an error by grilling them on it. And they're like, yeah, okay, I guess it doesn't make sense. Sure, it was an error. And you can just discard it. But I think what actually happens is it's statistical and they don't know. It's not, they don't know that you don't know if it's one way or the other way. It just kind of comes out.
1: So, I'm really lucky that the graduate syntax class I teach is all for future ESL teachers, right? So, we had to do the corpus approach and figure out what the common things are and then teach those common things. And I was looking, I, I think I, I asked you about this, Keith. Well, what, what kind of theory can I teach them? And I finally just gave up. Like, you know, I'm not going to teach them <laughs> any kind of linguistics theory because it's not helping them. It, it's not yeah, helping their students. The it doesn't help right. them. And so I feel like part of me feels like, well, they should be literate in the field and be able to talk about, you know, these various syntactic theories. And I finally thought, no, I'd really much rather they were able to explain all of my students don't understand this in a way that some of their students will understand. And no linguistic theory was helping me with that. And so I, I just finally gave up on the theory stuff and started teaching them about patterns. And
0: Right. I think that's the most useful approach in many cases, because you can just define a pattern that is useful. Yeah. Right? And it's true as often as, say, any random spelling rule in English.
1: Yeah, you do a bunch of frames, but then I have to, every time I start thinking, I'll do a bunch of frames, then I'll think, well, wait, but I don't want to say that frame is a thing that explains lots. Frames explain frames. And then I have to stop.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of theory should just be a tool. It's a framework in which to work to do something descriptively useful.
2: Yeah. Reveal some connections, and uh, and that's useful.
0: Yeah. The last thing I want to say here is that we sometimes have joked that SpecGram is essentially peer-reviewed. However, after reading this article, and especially all the discussion about peer-review, I think maybe SpecGram really does qualify as fully peer-reviewed. I mean, at least one person reads every single article that we publish, and sometimes two or three people read them. I think we're way ahead of the game. Anyway, that's all the time we have today for language made difficult. Join us next time when we will look at the correlation between the use of flip flop transformations and perceived reliability in politicians, and discuss whether mere syntax can sink a presidential campaign. Oh, I got to practice one more time. Wurstelstand. Close enough, right? That's good. That's good. It Close sounds enough. just like an American speaking German. Go all ahead. right, that's best I can hope for.
1: Welcome back to language. <laughs> What's that word? Tabwa. Tabwstedwasi. Okay, we're trying to get. Forsooth good friends, it is time for ye old prescriptivists. Oh, I forgot to say welcome back, didn't I? I'm no good at this. Welcome back to language, language welcome back to language made difficult. It is time for ye old prescriptivist conventions. I said conventions again.
0: <laughs> but I just like the idea of telling people what it's called and then that they will, of course, experience it on itself and hear about it somewhere else. <laughs> Yes, we know you're setting something up. Okay, are we ready? To I'm not setting something up. It's true that if you tell this someone... Bar. No, I'm not. I have nothing else to do with that. Though I'll try if I can figure it
1: <laughs> I think the Bader Meinhof phenomenon is an awesome band name. I would just like to say that for the record.
0: <laughs> and there, Sherry has fulfilled a prophecy because that'll go in the outtakes. So
1: <laughs> I'm kind of thinking okay. of changing our band name to Bader Meinhof. Because then they would, once they hear the band, they'd come back and hear you again and again. <laughs> They would. They would. They'd have to. (laughs) I think I might change our band name, all of them. I'm going to start a new band, just so I can call it that.
0: Bill, are you still there? Yes. Okay. Sometimes you're just quiet because we're all crazy, and sometimes you're quiet because your connection is wonky. I mean, it came out in some of the book reviews, too, that Specgram's really helpful. Yeah. People say they learn a lot. When we're not leading people wildly astray. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We're not actually lying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Which is part of the time. Oh, okay. Most of the time. My favorite quote. Here we go. I love Specgram, even though it makes me sad that after three years of university education in linguistics, I can only understand about half of it. <laughs> it's not really somebody's fault that they don't get the jokes about stratificational linguistics. Yeah, almost no one does. <laughs> Oh, I think people do. The stratification of macaroni and cheese is pretty popular. Okay. Actually, that's kind of a good bridge into it because you totally understand the mac and cheese instructions and you see that and you're like, Yeah. I kind of think I now know something about stratification linguistics without yes. having to crack open that book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like,
0: oh, okay.
2: You want to just start the LDL, LDL and L and L and L, and L in- intro again. All
0: right. Zippers. Somebody's zipping. This episode features unnecessary censorship. Here are some uncensored clips. But there's a an idiom, right, which we will euphemize as don't give a care. See all the cares I don't give. The phrase all my friends
4: don't give a care. You can't say all of my friends don't give a care. Only some of them do. Don't give a care, as we're saying? Yeah,
3: Bader yep, yep. Meinhof. Just remember, Bader Meinhof.